Hello, and welcome to the Reorient Podcast, the show about international issues and international people with an Asian twist. My name is Jesse Friedlander. Hello, everybody. This is Jesse Friedlander, your host, and today is 31st of May, 2023. On a very beautiful day, I'm pleased to be joined with uh, Dr. Scott Moore from the University of Pennsylvania, who is a China expert, and uh, we're going to have a wide-ranging topic, and I'm really looking forward to it. So, Scott Moore, welcome to the Reorient Podcast. Great to be here, Jesse. So, Scott, I'd like you to just start uh, to give the audience a sense for uh, your background, how you came to uh, have a certain this interest in uh, in China, what your um, focus areas, and perhaps a few key moments in your uh, trajectory that got you to where you are today. Uh, absolutely, thanks, Jesse. Yeah, uh, two kind of things about my my background that have really. Uh, kind of driven things ever since. Uh, first of all, uh, I had the opportunity uh, when I was in high school uh, to uh, go to a boarding school in Hong Kong. Uh, and this was from Kentucky, where I grew up. Needless to say, that was a big, uh, that was a big change. Uh, but this was in the early 2000s when uh, Hong Kong was really the gateway to uh, the mainland China market. Um, it was just a really, really exciting uh, time to be in that particular city. Uh, and uh, I, I fell in love with uh, uh, with with uh, the region uh, and with the the prospects uh, and implications of, of China's rise for the rest of the world. I also kind of zeroed in um, on a, in a particular interest on uh, the implications of, of China's rise uh, for uh, sustainability uh, and for the environment in particular. And that actually uh, uh, hit on or, or drew on uh, another aspect of my background, which uh, uh, when I was growing up in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, I was on a neighborhood soccer team uh, for eight seasons. Can't say I got any better uh, in those eight seasons, uh, but I had a great coach uh, who uh, in his day job was one of Kentucky's relatively few environmental lawyers. Uh, and when you're an environmental lawyer in Kentucky, uh, that's pretty much uh, dealing with coal companies. Uh, and so from a pretty early age, uh, I was really interested in uh, energy and, and climate change issues. And uh, I uh, found a way to combine those two interests uh, in uh, looking at uh, the environmental implications uh, of, of China's rise. Uh, one more just sort of aspect of my background that may be helpful to frame this discussion. Uh, I then, after finishing uh, grad school and and a postdoc, I had the opportunity to, to uh, serve at the U.S. Department of State uh, on the China desk, the office that handles U.S.-China relations. Uh, and I, uh, I was given this, this portfolio called Environment, Science, Technology, and Health, um, which, uh, of course, encompassed uh, that, uh, that interest I've always had in China and the environment, but also added a lot of other uh, issue areas that uh, in the the period, and this was uh, second Obama administration, so uh, um, uh, sort of in the 2014-2015 uh, uh, timeframe, that uh, in the uh, the decade or so since then have really become central to uh, the U.S.-China relationship and China's relationship with the world uh, in general. And that obviously includes public health, the response to COVID-19, uh, as well as uh, science and technology issues, uh, uh, artificial intelligence, biotechnology, et cetera. Um, so uh, that kind of uh, issue set has really been uh, uh, my focus for research and teaching 
since then, uh, and uh, the focus of uh, a recent book uh, called China's Next Act, which uh, uh, which came out last year, and in which I sort of tried to lay out uh, some of how uh, uh, China's rise uh, uh, implicates all of those different issue areas in environment, science, technology, and health. Well, that's a that's a great. Um, uh introduction to some of the key um, points in your development, Scott. And I should uh, also note that you are the director of the China Programs and Strategic Initiatives, I believe, at the uh, University of Pennsylvania. And you have a, a job that involves collaborating across uh, various disciplines and, and different departments. And um, it seems also reflective of your role at the Department of State. So um, you are able to bring a perspective of of seeing how things uh, relate, interrelate, um, and, ter- and especially in some very pressing, uh, broad, complicated, emerging uh, fields. Um, so it's a, an interesting perspective. Um, I should also note that you did do your, I believe, your master's and PhD at um, Oxford, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, That's right. Uh, would you just share with us a little bit of your focus, uh, academic focus at Oxford, uh, and then we'll get into perhaps some of the the key um, topics that you had raised in your recent book. Uh, sure thing. I, I focused on uh, China and the environment, so that's sort of always been a through line uh, uh, to uh, to my interest. But uh, as 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 you'll know, uh, Jesse, and as your as your listeners will know, uh, really kind of academia is about uh, uh, progressive uh, specialization. So the little corner of uh, the academic world that I carved out for myself uh, when I was doing my uh, my doctoral dissertation was actually. Uh, water uh, resource politics and policy in China. Uh, and that was an interest that uh, arose uh, because after college, uh, I had the opportunity to spend a year uh, living in uh, in China, primarily uh, Beijing. And this was the uh, in the run-up to the 2009 uh, uh, Copenhagen Climate Change Conference. And what was significant about that uh, is that um, uh, Barack Obama had just uh, been elected as president uh, pledging uh, to uh, uh, take climate uh, climate change seriously and commit the U.S. to uh, a new international agreement on climate change. And the big question at that at that in that period was, what will China do um, with respect to, to climate? Would China would be willing, uh, under any circumstances, to adopt uh, 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 emissions reductions? Um, and it really was a question at that point. China really did not have a well-developed uh, uh, climate policy at that point. Uh, and as I was talking to people uh, in that year that I was living in China, uh, I kept hearing something again and again when it came to climate change. And that was concern uh, for how climate change would affect uh, the distribution and availability of water, uh, particularly in uh, China's two major river basins, the Yangtze and the Yellow. Uh, and so that got me really interested in thinking about how water is used and managed uh, in China uh, and the implications that that might have for how China would approach climate change, uh, as well as, to some extent, its relations with neighboring countries. And we can certainly talk more about this, but water is a, a really significant issue uh, in China's relations with, uh, with India uh, and with uh, Southeast Asian nations in particular. Excellent. Well, I think that's a perfect segue then uh, to your book, um, your recent book that you've just published um, called China's Next Act, which I think you published uh, somewhere around the fall of 2021. So uh, it's quite fresh. Mm-hmm. Um, in that book, you raise, uh, you reference uh, a um, 
uh, an academic, a thinker named Ulrich Beck, uh, who coined or, or helped coin or promote this idea of the risks society. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about um, Beck's um, uh, point about the risks of society and how that's relevant to, to China or the U.S.-China discussion? Yeah, um, and Beck is uh, uh, pretty obscure, even in, in academic circles. So that you know, that's really saying something. Um, but he has become a little bit well known. There was a piece um, that Adam Tooze wrote uh, during the pandemic that was all about how Beck is sort of the the philosopher for the moment um, that that we were in, particularly in the early days of the pandemic. Uh, and what Beck is known for is this idea that at a certain stage of development. Um, societies become really characterized by this notion of existential risk, meaning risks and dangers uh, that are are sort of hidden um, and that raise really far-reaching implications uh, and are also somewhat intractable. Um, so Beck uh, is German. Uh, he was writing uh, uh, primarily in the late 70s, uh, early and mid 80s. And this was a period in which a lot of new science was coming out about uh, uh, carcinog uh, carcinogens that were found uh, in the environment. Uh, and also a period in which there was an escalated concern for uh, nuclear war uh, in, in Europe. Uh, and you sort of put these two things together. And, and Beck talks a lot about those two things, these sort of invisible chemicals that science was teaching us were sort of lurking uh, in the environment and that were were really quite hazardous for human health, but that we really uh, had only only just begun to understand. And of course, uh, uh, this is a, a against the backdrop of of the really constant threat of nuclear war. And so Beck comes up with this idea uh, that uh, modern life at some point becomes dominated by these uh, ideas of existential uh, risk that are really hard, and this is another key point that Beck makes, that are really hard for governments um, or traditional kind of uh, social structures and institutions to solve. Um, they're really, really sort of sit outside uh, our customary tools of law, um, uh, of, of kind of property rights. Um, they're, they're very difficult to really fully uh, uh, mitigate in terms of risks. Uh, and why I think this is interesting with respect to China uh, has a lot to do with uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. As we know, uh, COVID disrupted life everywhere, um, probably nowhere as severely, though, in mainland China, uh, maybe with the exception of you know North Korea or something. But uh, the scale of disruption in mainland China uh, was really something special in terms of the economic impact, in terms of the extent to which it uh, uh, led to the development of all kinds of new uh, uh, tracking apps and uh, uh, and just fundamental changes to uh, the way that people uh, lived. And all because of an invisible virus uh, that created this uh, existential public health risk. Um, so COVID-19, I think, is the best example for why Beck and this idea of the risk society is interesting and sort of helps to explain uh, uh, what China has been through in the last few years and uh, uh, and where it's going, but it's also true, I think, when we think of climate risk uh, and something we can we can maybe get to Jesse. But uh, I think there's a very good argument to be made that of the world's largest uh, economies or the world's large economies, China is the most heavily exposed to climate risks. Uh, so again, I think uh, climate is another aspect of the sort of existential risk. And the third thing that I'll flag uh, uh, is emerging technology. Um, and it's very interesting, you know, we've talked so much in the last six months or so about uh, AI and the sort of dangers of AI, regulation of AI. 
as far as I can tell, China is uh, the world leader in regulating AI. Um, and that's, uh, I think, interesting for a couple of reasons, but the most uh, direct of, uh, of which is that uh, China's leaders uh, see these emerging technologies as uh, imposing significant risks, uh, and they are really putting a lot of effort uh, into trying to uh, to mitigate them. Uh, and so to me, that's sort of a third facet uh, of uh, China and the risk society. You've got sort of climate, you've got health, public health, and then you've got emerging technologies. I think the risk society concept kind of ties all those together. So I think that's uh, a great place to start. I mean, with the risk society, to me, it comes across as a bit of a, a Western, you know, angst. Um, and, and we've had uh, periods of, of angst in the West, um, existentialist angst, right, uh, which is probably a, a very Western phenomenon and, and goes, you know, very far back and, and surfaces in many ways. And certainly uh, in, you know, po- you know, we had that in the modern era a, a lot. Um, and um uh, whether it's you know s- social issues or, or survival of the state or perhaps um, different uh, groups, um, ethnic groups and uh, national groups, and then um, you know a nuclear war and as, as you mentioned uh, on the disease front, and you're um, you're applying this uh, concept to China, um, which I think is is super interesting. But let's try to give it some context. So um, from the perspective of China. Um, they historically uh, did not need to worry about um, as much of these sort of low probability, intang- intangible, hard to identify existentialist risks because they were facing very real and present uh, dangers and risks. And if we go back to, say, the Qing dynasty with the um, impact of, of colonialism, and you could look at the opium wars, and that was sort of survival of, of the empire and, and perhaps their social structure. And then we, you know, come sort of forward to, um, you know, China's um, risk or, or trying to form a government, you know, when you had the, the three, you know, warring um, states of China, and then you had the um, invasion by Japan, um, and, uh, and then you had World War II, and you had civil war in China. And then you go there, you have the risk really of, of mass famine, right, under Mao. Uh, and uh, And then there was the threat of conflict with the Soviet Union. Um, so those those sort of real and present dangers um, probably were the focus and guided, uh, you know, the, the decisions by China's leadership. I, I'd imagine you'd agree with that. Um, but China yeah, now absolutely. today uh, has reached a, a level of power and wealth and sophistication. It's absorbed a lot of uh, technology, technological know-how from the West. Um, it's um, it, in many ways has uh, surpassed uh, the Western countries uh, in 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 so many areas, both industrially, in research and development, etc. So China can afford now to think perhaps about these um, these sort of intangible, low probability but existential risks uh, that are um, are coined in that term uh, by uh, by Beck. Would you, would you agree? that? Yeah. And I mean, uh, 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 something that Beck uh, uh, goes to some some pains to, to kind of point out is that this, uh, he sort of sees this as uh, kind of a function of modernity. So it's really once societies kind of reach a certain point of development uh, economically, but, you know, in other, in other ways as well, technologically, certainly. Um, I think to me, kind of a, a key point, sort of stepping back and just maybe to kind of take a, 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 a step back. I think the risk society is useful as sort of an academic uh, uh, concept for tying together 
these uh, different issue sets uh, across environment, science, technology, health, how they apply to China and how they sort of frame the implications of that. But I think getting, getting more directly to the implications, um, one of the things I, I uh, uh, say in the book, um, and I think runs counter to really a lot of how we are used to talking about uh, China and emerging technology and things like that, or if anything, uh, these uh, set of issues, sustainability and emerging technology, actually present greater risks for China uh, than for most other countries. Uh, and that is very much uh, the, the kind of shape uh, of policy. Uh, so when uh, Chinese policymakers are thinking about how to deal with emerging technologies, how to deal with climate change, it's actually uh, the risk side of the equation is uh, more uh, heavily weighted than the opportunity side. Um, and I think uh, that's a, a, a useful corrective to kind of how we're, we often talk about, you know, China being ahead in artificial intelligence or things like that. Uh, really, China faces these uh, uh, challenges and these, these sort of brave new worlds, if you want to think of them that way, uh, from a position of relative weakness rather than strength. And I think it's really important to understand that. So um, just to frame the context a bit more for, for our listeners, because I, I gave a sort of a quick um, you know, 60 second walk through history to sort of talk about how we got to this point. But let's talk about the you know, political system and the ideology, because um, that's going to be, you know, that is a major theme in your book. It's a major theme for anyone that looks at China and tries to understand China's approach to dealing you know, with domestic issues or, or multilateral issues. So you know, how do you understand China's political system? And also when you talk about China, you know, what's good for China, what's a risk for China? Do you, are you differentiating between the Chinese Communist Party, you know, the political apparatus itself and the country as a whole? Yeah, great, great questions. Uh, and it may be worth saying one of the questions I, I sort of set out for myself to try to answer uh, in China's Next Act is, why, uh, as the the immediacy uh, and and level of danger and risk from climate change, from public health, from emerging technologies has increased, and while China's role in each of those issues has become more salient and significant over the last decade, why have we not seen more and more effective uh, cooperation, collective action between China and other countries? And in fact, we've seen the exact opposite. We've seen uh, much less cooperation. We've seen much more competition uh, and conflict and contention. Why is that? Uh, and my answer to that uh, is because uh, China's perception uh, of these newer uh, emerging issue areas as more heavily laden with risk than opportunity has led uh, China's top leadership to double down uh, on some tried and and, and true uh, uh, ideological uh, tools. Uh, and there are three that I talk about uh, in the book. One is nationalism, one is protectionism uh, in an economic sense. Uh, and, and the final one is authoritarianism. That, that's probably the one we're most used to talking about uh, in a Western context. Um, I hasten to add though, that I think if you kind of scope out beyond China, which obviously is the focus of, of, of the book, um, but if you kind of, because you could also answer that or ask that question with respect to the world at large, why have we not seen more effective cooperation in response to COVID-19 or climate change, for example? Uh, and I think, uh, unfortunately, that tendency to rely on these 
I sort of call them problematic principles of nationalism, authoritarianism, uh, 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 and protectionism, uh, has been mirrored elsewhere uh, in other major countries. And I think that, so it's both a China uh, uh, specific phenomenon and it's to some extent a global phenomenon. What uh, is important with respect to China though, is the extent to which those principles or those approaches, nationalism, authoritarianism, protectionism, how deeply rooted they are in Chinese political tradition and how readily available they are therefore to China's senior leaders in terms of that's kind of the comfort food, if you want to think of it, um, when presented um, with these new, unfamiliar, unsettling uh, risks and challenges arising from climate, from uh, uh, pandemics, from emerging technologies. They're sort of the go, they become the go-to. And that gets to the second part of your question, which is the role uh, of the party itself. Uh, now, obviously, uh, a hallmark of uh, the C era in Chinese uh, uh, governance, but even kind of going back to the late uh, Hu Jintao uh, years has been sort of the revitalization of the party as the uh, uh, the uh, uh, kind of sole legitimate uh, uh, political actor uh, in, uh, in the Chinese system uh, and the sort of uh, revitalization of that kind of leading central dominant uh, role uh, for the party. Uh, that being said, something that I, I try to uh, uh, go to some some lengths to, to point out in my book uh, is that while that is undoubtedly true, at the same time, one of the big stories of modern China is the uh, pluralization of society, uh, the growth of a genuine private sector, uh, even as you know China remains much more state controlled and dominated than uh, is the case in most uh, advanced industrial uh, uh, countries. Nonetheless, you have a genuine, uh, very large uh, private sector. You do have uh, something that approximates civil society, even though it doesn't look like, you know, necessarily what you find uh, uh, in democracies. And certainly uh, it is subject to much more control and supervision. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, there's a, been a dramatic pluralization of society. That's a really key uh, facet of contemporary China. And that's especially significant uh, in looking at these newer uh, issue areas like uh, climate policy or like uh, emerging technology, where very often some of the key actors are either uh, you know, kind of private sector entities, or uh, in the case of emerging technologies uh, in advanced biotech, for example, uh, the de facto regulators are individual scientists or researchers or labs, uh, not the state, not, uh, you know, not large organizations. So I think that uh, even though it is true that the party uh, leads all, uh, uh, and that's been more true under C than, uh, than at any other point in the last uh, 40 years, that is true alongside this dramatic pluralization of Chinese society. Um, so um, to get to the, you know, you raise these three um, really barriers, I think, to um, cooperation, international cooperation on, on emerging issues, authoritarianism, protectionism, and nationalism. Um, but if you look at sort of the history of, of the Communist Party, uh, and even pre-communist, um, you know, the the May Fourth movement, other you know nationalist movements in China, these all have a very long tradition in China. So, should we sort of not expect the Chinese Communist Party to abandon? 
these three very prote- uh, very powerful tools that it uses to really help organize society in a sense from its perspective um, to eliminate or 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 pr- reduce uh, what it sees as existentialist risks. So these are actually the tools that it views as most important uh, to maintain its its legitimacy and perhaps indeed to elevate China or continue to elevate China on its path towards you know, uh, being a, a global superpower, strong economy and leading in so many areas. That's right. Uh, and one of the things I, uh, the other kind of, uh, at least as I see it, key points uh, in, in my book is that for that reason, for the very reason you, you laid out, uh, that these kind of uh, deeply rooted, um, but also quite destructive, at least to the, you know, kind of uh, a cause of cooperation uh, uh, principles, or why we can't count on cooperation or collective action to respond to these shared challenges. So we have to find other ways of thinking about engaging uh, with China or rethinking uh, China's role in tackling these shared global challenges, whether it's regulating AI or whether uh, it's uh, it's fighting climate change. And so I talk a lot in the book uh, about how we can make progress, and I think we can, uh, not necessarily by cooperating, uh, but rather uh, by competing, by sort of trying to foster, if you want to think of it this way, uh, 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 productive uh, uh, competition and, and even uh, contention uh, in terms of trying to raise the bar for investment in clean energy technology, for example. And that's a dynamic uh, we're already seeing in the U.S. A good example is the Inflation Reduction Act, which uh, in his message to Congress saying, if you pass this bill, I will sign it. President Biden uh, actually talked uh, a lot about China and said that we need this legislation, you know, not just to fight climate change, not just to reduce inflation, uh, but to uh, equip the United States to, to more effectively compete with China. Uh, so there you, there you have a very explicit uh, uh, use of this kind of idea of, of geopolitical economic competition. Uh, as a reason to invest in clean energy. And I think across uh, several of these issue areas, you know, basic research into uh, biotechnology, for example, uh, that can be uh, a productive dynamic uh, under the right circumstances. Um, although I, I hasten to add, and we might want to come back to this, that um, I do think cooperation is is preferable. I think it's almost always cheaper and uh, easier <laughs> Uh, to uh, to make progress than competition or or some other form of uh, of interaction, but given uh, this reality that we face, where you know I do think uh, uh, nationalism, protectionism, authoritarianism so deeply rooted uh, in at least the the contemporary uh, Chinese Communist Party, and again definitely has very deep ideological roots and historical roots, as you point out, uh, we're that's just the reality, and we have to to think differently because of it. So um, before we go into sort of uh, the here and now and the future, on, on which I w- do want to address on on climate change, on um, you know, yeah, clean energy and, and AI and other technology issues, and perhaps uh, even more sort of uh, military related, can we look at, let, let's just go back, because I, I think a really uh, interesting and, and perhaps somewhat disturbing case study is this uh, SARS-CoV-2, which you do discuss in the book. And, um, you know, I think there's, it seems that there's a still a lot about SARS-CoV-2 and its origins that um, have not been um, sort of officially agreed upon. There's still some 
I think, uh, confusion and, and perhaps some, some mystery surrounding it. But I think what we do know for a fact is that there was some sort of uh, research going on in the Wuhan Institute of Virology that was funded by the U.S. You know, taxpayers through you know, various entities. Uh, they were working on uh, apparently, you know, coronavirus uh, research and developing, uh, you know, doing I believe gain of function research. I think that's all been yeah, that's right uh, verified. Um, so that was happening, and we also do know that you know the first um, officially recognized outbreak of SARS-CoV-2 was in Wuhan. Um, so whether that was a coincidence or not, you know that that happened. Um, and we do look at sort of China's response to uh, the pandemic uh, being very, very different to uh, much of, of the rest of the world uh, in the democracy. So China uh, pretty much closed itself off uh, all contact. Um, you know, we saw some issues around the PP&E uh, in terms of, of China um, you know, buying PP&E uh, overseas and then using it domestically and then not uh, having uh, exporting it when it was needed by Western countries. Um, we also, um, you know, we saw that um, uh, really uh, Xi Jinping made it clear in a number of official pronouncements that China was in a state of war uh, during this yeah. period without sort of clarifying, you know, against who or what that was about. And we did see some competition over sort of quote unquote vaccine diplomacy. Um, there are a few different moving parts, but, um, the, uh, there, it was clear there was, uh, zero cooperation and, um, lots of competition and perhaps there was some conflict. Uh, we never got a, um, uh, a fact-finding uh, mission, uh, you know, WHO. So we were never given any sort of official uh, investigation into its origins and how that went out. So um, if that is indeed a case study, it, it seems to provide uh, next to no hope uh, for um, for sort of cooperation on, on global issues. But w can you fill in some of the, the, the empty spots in what I just discussed and maybe how you understood what, what has transpired over the past few years in, in the context of, of what you're writing about in the book. Yeah, absolutely, Jesse. And, and I think that's, uh, uh, that's exactly right. My, my argument is that uh, the response to COVID-19 or really lack thereof uh, is, is exhibit A for why we can't count on cooperation. Uh, you know, at least as we usually understand, understand that word uh, 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 with China. Uh and uh, so that that the first chapter in the book uh, is about uh, COVID nineteen and and uh, global health and and pandemic prevention um, and um, the the additional uh, uh, kind of uh, twist uh, to what uh, you described and what what everyone knows at this point, which is that um, there was a massive failure uh, both on the part of the Chinese government and and subsequently the U.S. government and and most governments around the world to uh, really communicate or. Uh, collaborate in any way to, to tr meaningfully try to uh, arrest the spread of COVID-19. Uh, the, the missing piece uh, uh, of that that I go into, into some depth uh, in that first chapter is that uh, uh, public health and specifically the prevention of a pandemic just like COVID-19 was the single biggest, most substantive area of U.S.-China governmental cooperation going all the way back to 1978-79. The first major cabinet-level visit uh, after normalization of uh, U.S.-China relations in 1979 was on health, 
uh, it got to the point where uh, at its sort of zenith in the early 2000s, the CDC had dozens of people working out of the U.S. Embassy in uh, Beijing training uh, Chinese epidemiologists. Um, You know, I mean, really no meaningful difference between China's top uh, public health epidemiologists and their CDC counterparts. China's indeed China's counterpart to the CDC is the China CDC. I mean, it was literally created as as close to a carbon copy as you get uh, of uh, its, you know, of the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. All to say, you cannot overstate how much effort went into uh, building capacity and channels for uh, communication cooperation between the U.S. and Chinese governments on public health in general and detecting and preventing new pandemics, uh, pandemic diseases in particular. So the utter failure uh, of any of that uh, investment or those channels to do much of anything uh, to uh, to stop uh, the COVID-19 pandemic really raises, I think, some very tough questions about, uh, uh, again, the extent to which we can really count on cooperation, particularly at the governmental level. And it is may- worth maybe saying, I talk a lot in the book, and it kind of gets back to this point about you know, pluralization and all these new actors and players that have come onto the scene, both in China and elsewhere. I think when it comes to the U.S. and China, we we spend way too much time talking and thinking just about government to government, you know, kind of nation state uh, uh, level diplomacy when these are really big countries, huge economies. And, you know, their the relationship is a lot deeper than just the government to government level. Uh, and that, you know, as as bad as relations are at that level, um, I think there is a lot more scope uh, for uh, uh, cooperation or dialogue or inter- engagement at the subnational level uh, among non-state actors, et cetera. So we can kind of come back to that. But uh, uh, just a great case study of failure uh, in, in the sense of, uh, uh, of public health. However, uh, public health uh, and pandemic prevention is also a good case study uh, of why China's indispensable. Uh, to confronting uh, global challenges, in this case, preventing future pandemics. Um, It's really striking. um, And I talk a lot about uh, uh, the SARS epidemic in in this uh, chapter uh, as sort of a precursor, uh, or one person even called it a dress rehearsal for uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. And the fact of the matter is uh, that uh, a lot of new zoonotic diseases uh, 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 tend to come from uh, uh, from China, uh, and I mean, among other places. Uh, but it's just really essential uh, that the rest of the world find a way to productively uh, work with China to uh, detect and, to the extent possible, uh, to uh, prevent uh, the spread of of future pandemics. And even putting aside the question of origin, you know, new uh, uh, diseases or viruses kind of originating. Uh, within China, uh, China's uh, transportation links, its role in, in uh, global health governance. I mean, China, whether you like it or not, does play a very significant role in the World Health Organization. Um, all of those, for all of those reasons, China is really uh, uh, central, critical, and indispensable uh, to uh, uh, to ensuring global health security. So it's sort of a uh, uh, on both sides of the equation. It's a great COVID nineteen is a great case study for the failure of cooperation but also a great case study for why uh, the world does need to work with China uh, to some degree uh, to address these shared global challenges. 
Yeah, uh, very well stated. So, you know, we're in a position now where there seems to be next to no cooperation. I mean, we've seen um, even just very recently, um, uh, the U.S. seems to be making the Biden administration is making a number of overtures to the Chinese government, who's, uh, I believe, pretty much has um, stopped all military to military communication and uh, obviously canceled uh, U.S. Secretary of State Blinken's uh, planned visit. You had this um, spy balloon uh, incident over the U.S. and then there was um, Secretary of State Blinken was planning to visit China. That that visit was canceled uh, by, I believe, by the Chinese. Um, and then uh, Defense Secretary of Austin, I believe, wanted to speak to someone in China and they said no, rebuffed him. So um, it seems fairly evident at this point um, that China is not interested in cooperating with the um, the Biden administration. Um, are there any sort of counterexamples you'd point to? And, and the second thing is, do you what do you think might at some point change this dynamic? Yeah, there are no major counterexamples uh, that I can point to. I mean, there are some very small exceptions. And I, I mean, I talk in the book um, about a few areas in which I think um, there is room for for some productive uh, uh, expansion of cooperation. One is nuclear security, which I can talk about in more detail, but just has historically uh, been a shockingly effective area of U.S.-China uh, governmental cooperation. There are others in the environmental arena, biodiversity conservation, wildlife trafficking, um, but very, very limited. Um, and I think that kind of gets to... Um, point I just raised uh, a couple minutes ago in that I think we really have to think beyond this, uh, you know, kind of U.S.-China uh, government to government uh, relationship. And I think we have to think uh, really in, in terms of, of, of three alternative routes. One is uh, subnational. Uh, so it's, you know, state, local, local governments. Uh, the other is non-state. It's, you know, uh, uh, private sector, industry associations, universities, uh, and then the third is multilateral. Um, so you don't engage. It's not U.S.-China bilateral, uh, but it's uh, 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 China, U.S. and, you know, allied and like-minded uh, uh, governments kind of coming together in coalition formats. And I think those approaches offer uh, much more constructive prospects for uh, engaging China, though I hasten to say, uh, you know, I don't think uh, either of uh, any of those approaches are, you know, none of them are magic bullets. Uh, certainly, there are lots of issues with, uh, uh, you know, trying to get, uh, uh, you know, uh, states and uh, uh, U.S. states and Chinese provinces together. You know, there are still major political issues and security concerns, uh, you know, that could come with that. So none of them are are without uh, uh, issues or challenges. But under the circumstances, each of those three approaches, I think, offers uh, uh, better prospects than the government-to-government -government diplomacy. So is there anything, uh, I mean, do you see that any sort of incentive that, or sort of environment, something that's going to change the calculus? Um, is it really just down to a political change, either in China or the U.S. or both? Or, or you know, do you think that somehow, um, you, know, pe you know, people in Xi Jinping's you know, inner circle are going to read your book or, or and say, you know, we really should be, you know, be more cooperative. I mean, how do you see what's going to break the impasse? <laughs> um, you know, I've uh, I've been told, you know, not not uh, Xi Jinping level, but I, I've been told uh, uh, that you know, a few people uh, uh, have become aware of my book in China. I'm not sure if uh, I, I don't I'm not sure if that makes it less likely I could get a visa, frankly, um, it might. 
Uh, I don't know if it's uh, uh, anything in there is very popular, um, but uh, I think um, uh, I think what it uh, 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 what it will require uh, is is more or less yeah political change on one side or the other, uh, and I think that's uh, I think it's that's unlikely on either side, but it is more likely on the Chinese side than on the U.S. side. Um, I think uh, you know the it, it sort of hawkishness on China has become uh, uh, pretty deeply embedded in American political DNA. Um, the only American political figure of any stature that I'm aware of who has uh, kind of publicly questioned uh, a, a pretty hawkish China policy uh, is Bernie Sanders. Um, there may be others, but I, I, he's the only one that I'm aware of. Um, and I think, uh, uh, you know, in the mean, unless there is some significant change, I, I don't see the kind of basic dynamic shifting uh, anytime soon. That being said, um, I think there are some some green shoots. Uh, I think we've seen on both sides, U.S. and Chinese, uh, the willingness to to kind of step back at least a couple steps in recent months. Uh, and the the biggest bright spot, I think, is on the trade side. Um so you know we've we've kind of seen on on one side there's been a uh, a steady parade of of U.S. CEOs visiting China in recent uh, weeks and months, uh, and then on the sort of more governmental side, you know we're now hearing that uh, we may see a a meeting between uh, Catherine Tai, the U.S. Trade Representative, and uh, China's uh, Minister of Commerce, or you know uh, uh, other uh, senior official. Same with uh, Gina Raimondo, uh, the U.S. Uh, Commerce Secretary. So. I think we're starting to see some uh, some uh, green shoots in the trade arena, which uh, is really promising, not just because uh, of the uh, the economic benefits there, but also just because historically the trade and investment part of the relationship has really been the ballast in the U.S.-China relationship. I mean, it's worth remembering that the the political military stuff, you know, has always been difficult, at least since 1989. You know. There, there has never been in that period a, a, a pleasant uh, conversation about Taiwan or, you know, about regional security, uh, uh, you know, but uh, you always had uh, the trade and investment relationship to kind of counterbalance that. Uh, and the combination of the trade war and the pandemic really kind of knocked that that leg out uh, uh, from the stool of the uh, of the relationship and, and it's teetered accordingly. So I think to the extent that that uh, kind of leg or pillar can be um, uh, repaired a little bit, it's going to help to stabilize uh, relations. But I, I don't think they're coming back to where they were, uh, you know, sort of pre-2017 anytime soon. Uh, and they weren't all that good even then. So let's assume uh, base case, um, which I think your, um, your answers sort of uh, support the notion of uh, more or less a, a competition. Uh, between the two. And um, you could say it's sort of an ideological competition. Um, and, and if that's sort of the, the general dynamic or framework for the relationship with these two great powers, um, which is, you know, somewhat akin to, you know, the, the Cold War in a way, um, you know, how does that play out? Because uh, China, um, and this will be relevant to things like uh, clean technology and, and uh, AI um, and perhaps um, space and other things, China is making huge advances. And we're reading about every day how whether it's hypersonic uh, weapons or their AI systems, their ability to have rolled out a lot of, um, you know, financial technology innovation in their society, obviously their high-speed rail network and other infrastructure 
Um, I think there's a number of areas where China is clearly leading the U.S. Um, uh, so the U.S., which was the leader every you know in, in every domain, is now maybe the leader in some domains. So, assuming that trend is continuing, um, and so China would see it's to its advantage to maintain the status quo. What does that mean for these um, these emerging existentialist risks that you uh, that you discuss? Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, yes, I do think this kind of competition paradigm is where we are uh, for the foreseeable future. I think, as as others have pointed out, the main uh, kind of uh, task really is is to prevent that from veering into uh, conflict. Um, the thing that I think uh, is a little different from the Cold War and things like that is you've got these newer dimensions of competition. So it's true, you, you definitely have economic, you definitely have political, military, diplomatic, uh, and you have ideological. Those were all true uh, during the Cold War. Uh, but now you also have technological, which you didn't really have as much during the Cold War. A little bit, but not to the same extent. And obviously, uh, the big frontiers of that are AI, biotech, and I talk uh, a lot about robotics, uh, and I talk a lot about that uh, in, uh, in the book. Uh, and then I also think you have this sort of... Um, public goods or sustainability uh, dimension, where uh, increasingly uh, the fight against climate change is being uh, uh, kind of colored by geopolitical competition. And that's true uh, to some extent with respect to China, um, worth kind of briefly mentioning that China, along with the suspension of defense uh, talks that you mentioned earlier, China also uh, suspended climate talks with the US They've, uh, as a result of Speaker Pelosi's visit to Taiwan. Uh, they've since been restored, but they really haven't uh, uh, come back uh, to what they were uh, prior to that. Uh, uh, and then this is also true of, of uh, uh, Russia, Ukraine, in terms of uh, changing the nature of the climate discussion with uh, respect to European energy security, all those sorts of things. Um, so what we're kind of seeing is this more old school, you know, kind of Cold War uh, uh, era understanding of, of rivalry and sort of what competition and conflict is, is uh, uh, kind of morphing uh, into a couple new domains. Um, so that I think is is what's new and different uh, about China uh, and its sort of role in the in the 21st century. Uh, and I think ultimately, uh, where this uh, where this takes us uh, is we just do have to think uh, differently. And we have to think beyond just cooperation or this idea that, you know, countries just have to sort of like put aside their differences, uh, you know, to kind of uh, uh, respond to shared global challenges. Uh, that's just not uh, uh, realistic, uh, given uh, how China's positioned uh, in this century. But I think it is possible uh, to make uh, uh, to make progress uh, on these shared challenges. It just requires uh, a real change in mindset and a real uh, change in terms of how we uh, how we think about China and its role in the world. So it it seems so much of a you know game theory dynamic because um, even though um, cooperation you know provides the greatest um, value overall and, and most efficient um, when you have some degree of competition it um, it makes cooperation costly uh, potentially costly for uh, you know either party and perhaps you know strategically you know in China's uh, perspective. Um, they might win uh, because uh, they might feel that they um, have things that they want to do, as, you know, in their national interest. And um, cooperating and helping the U.S. may not actually; it may actually mean that they're not able to achieve 
all their aims as quickly as they would like. And, you know, you could point to some of the the issues around, uh, you know, territorial sovereignty and there's, you know, claim, various overlapping claims uh, in the uh, in the Asia Pacific region. Um, but you could also look at perhaps the economic or monetary system. I mean, China's um, has voiced uh, historically that, um, um, you know, that it's maybe not completely satisfied with the, the role of the U.S. and and making, you know, influencing the rules and multilateral institutions, et cetera. So if one side is not happy with the status quo, um, perhaps, you know, that makes it even less likely they're going to want to cooperate even on issues that could be in their own uh, interest. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, and I think if you sort of try to maybe tie together at a really broad level, a lot of what we've been talking about, and just I think a lot of things as it pertains to China, um, is that policymakers on, on, on both sides, in the US, China, and increasingly other places, uh, Europe, Japan, uh, as well, uh, have decided, uh, I think, for varying degrees of, uh, you know, uh, uh, good reasons, um, that uh, security is more important, or, or the, the value of security, broadly defined, outweighs gains from trade. And that's the reverse of how we've really operated uh, in the post-Cold War era um, as, a, as a world, and how the U.S.-China relationship has operated since 1979. It was exactly the opposite. The calculation on both sides was that gains from trade outweigh, uh, you know, kind of security-related concerns, even though obviously those were significant. Um, so we've kind of seen that flip. Um, and uh, that, I think, is going to be a change that is going to uh, persist uh, for some time. Um, I think uh, it doesn't mean that we can't uh, uh, make some progress in tackling these shared global challenges. What it does mean, uh, I think, is that doing that is going to be more expensive and more difficult than if we were relying more on a gains from trade uh, uh, sort of cooperative view of the world. Um, but it is it is what it is. And, you know, admittedly, there are some good reasons, I think, for that change in perception. Um, you know, certainly uh, there are very, I think, legitimate security related concerns, especially when it comes to uh, emerging technologies. But I think that's sort of the fundamental change that's happened in the U.S.-China relationship and in the world at large. Uh, and we just have to think about how uh, these increasingly common challenges of climate, public health, emerging technologies fit into this new framework that we're in. So let's talk about for a minute um, emerging technologies. Um, artificial intelligence has really uh, jumped in the news uh, with you know things like ChatGPT. It's gotten a lot of attention, uh, even though there's been focus on AI for uh, a long time, and even with autonomous vehicles and other things. But what what sort of the how do you see um, artificial intelligence, the development uh, playing out in terms of the U.S.-China relationship? So, um, you know, to, to, to be honest, it wasn't sort of a central objective in my book to sort of really uh, uh, compare uh, U.S. and Chinese strengths and capabilities in, uh, in AI or other technologies. But I have to say um, that based on all the evidence I did look at, uh, I do not see any, uh, uh, any real sign that China is uh, surpassing uh, the capabilities of the United States or other advanced industrial uh, uh, countries in any meaningful sense uh, in any emerging technology area, whether that is robotics, uh, whether it's biotech, whether it's AI, 
uh, whether it's quantum uh, computing. Uh, I think uh, a lot of the kind of concern and discussion uh, about uh, China's uh, role, particularly in artificial intelligence, has much more to do with the fact that the gap is narrowing and narrowing at an accelerating rate uh, between China and other countries. But there is still a gap. And my assessment is that that gap will persist um, for the foreseeable future unless China undertakes some pretty significant uh, institutional reforms uh, to how it funds uh, research, to how its universities function, to how technology is commercialized, to how intellectual property is protected, and to how companies interact, the private sector interacts with uh, researchers, with uh, uh, and with university communities. So those are, they're very, I think at this point, uh, you know, China's pretty much been able to narrow the gap as far as it can um, without undertaking those uh, 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 kind of institutional and in some cases even cultural changes to innovation ecosystems uh, that are really, really hard uh, uh, to, to change. Penn, uh, specifically, along with a number, many, many other U.S. academic institutions had, uh, over the years, maybe particularly the last 10 to 15 years, developed a lot of programs with China, you know, cooperation, exchange, etc. I don't know really all the details, but could you give us just a sense, given your, your work at Penn, what's the current status of academic interaction with China and, and how do you see that evolving? Well, I mean, um, the the kind of, I think, tagline is, I mean, first of all, in terms of, you know, Penn, like most U.S. universities, has uh, a very large Chinese uh, student population, as well as a large uh, ethnically or ancestrally Chinese, uh, you know, faculty, staff, uh, postdoc population that adds immeasurably to the university. And we haven't seen any change uh, in that uh, application you know, numbers from China have remained uh, uh, steady and or rising um, throughout uh, the pandemic period. Um, in terms of the academic exchange and collaboration, though, um, it, it's it's sort of too early to tell um, post-pandemic. We're, we, we're starting to see some, uh, some uh, faculty travel uh, back to China. Had a couple cases this spring. Uh, we'll have more uh, as the summer deepens. Um, we we'll also have some uh, students who will be returning uh, for uh, uh, a study abroad in the fall to China, but it's just sort of too early to tell exactly uh, how all of that is going to uh, to pan out. Certainly, there are concerns in the China studies community about access to information, uh, about restrictions on uh, you know who you can talk to uh, or monitoring and things like that. Um, but we'll just have to see how significant those are. Certainly, though. Uh, you know, the the once uh, broad and vast uh, uh, collaborations that we saw before the pandemic have really shrunk. It's just a question now of uh, uh, whether, you know, we'll really see it kind of get back to uh, that pre-pandemic uh, normal. Uh, the final thing I think it's just important to say about that, though, is uh, these collaborations are really um, uh, important, particularly with China, just given the size of uh, China's academic community uh, uh, and its uh, its research community. Um, but by every measure, and I look at this in the book, uh, the U.S. has gained more from that exchange and those collaborations uh, than China has. And I think that's something that we don't think or talk uh, enough about. You know, I think there's a tendency to uh, think that, uh, you know, the U.S. kind of lost, uh, if anything, from this exchange. 
based on every empirical measure I could find, it's the exact opposite. And I think we should really think hard about that um, as we're, uh, uh, you know, kind of rethinking academic collaborations with China post-pandemic. That's interesting. Um, maybe we could finish up on water. Um, it's sure, such an important topic, um, you know, germane to everywhere. It crosses borders. I believe China has taken a unique approach to its um, uh, water management and particularly in relation to international water issues and and rights to access water, et cetera. So could you walk us through sort of what the water issue is in China and and how that's evolving in this current era? Yeah, uh, absolutely. So the the key thing with China and water is geography. So China uh, really sits at uh, 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 well, the phrase that's uh, often used is China's the, the water tower uh, of Asia, meaning that it uh, controls uh, most of the um, uh, uh, Tibetan plateau where most of Asia's major rivers originate. So on its Chinese uh, uh, territory where uh, the original headwaters of uh, the Brahmaputra, uh, certainly the Yangtze, the Yellow, the Mekong, um, almost all of China's, uh, sorry, Asia's major rivers originate on Chinese territory, and in particular, uh, the uh, 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 glaciers and snowfields uh, of the, the Tibetan Plateau. Um, the climate, you know, kind of issue there, obviously, is uh, uh, as the world warms, uh, those uh, uh, glaciers are melting, the snowpacks are, are decreasing in uh, in volume and size. So the long-term uh, runoff into those major rivers is going to uh, decrease. The other kind of feature of that uh, geography is that in principle, uh, it puts China in a position to uh, uh, largely through the construction of large dams or diverting water uh, to significantly affect the flow uh, of those large Asian rivers into neighboring countries. And that's really the source of most of the kind of conflict or uh, uh, concern. The thing that's important to understand, though, from just sort of a like how water works perspective or a hydrological perspective um, is that even though uh, building a dam, you know, on the border uh, or in Chinese territory can disrupt the flow of water downstream, rivers work as giant kind of catchments in a basin. So they kind of suck in uh, water from a large uh, uh, territory. Uh, and so for the most part, when you're talking about these major rivers, whether it's the Mekong or uh, the Brahmaputra, most of the flow that you see in Indian territory or in uh, 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 Cambodian territory is actually going to come from Cambodian territory or from Indian territory, not necessarily from China. So it's it's very difficult to actually, you know, kind of cut off uh, the flow of water. And therefore, it's really hard. Uh, and usually nonsensical to really think of water as a weapon per se. That being said, Chinese dams definitely have been very uh, um, built with with very little concern uh, given to the impact of, of downstream countries and certainly uh, very damaging to the environment. But the idea that you often hear that, you know, sort of water is a weapon and, you know, that's sort of in China's arsenal uh, just doesn't really match the reality of of, of how uh, river systems work. Uh, and in fact, 
Um, globally speaking, uh, water is much more often a, 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 a sort of source of cooperation than it is conflict. Um, so it's definitely a concern and a complicating factor in China's relations with uh, neighboring uh, neighboring countries. But in terms of where we see the prospect for conflict or danger, that wouldn't crack my uh, my top 10 list of things to worry about. We've talked about most of the ones that would be on that list. Right. Well, um, Scott, is very, uh, very interesting conversation. Uh, I think we did cover a lot, and I think we do have a, a pretty um, uh, basic understanding of, of where we sit in terms of, of relationships between U.S. and China and um, also the impact of some of these emerging themes. I would um, certainly uh, encourage everyone who's interested in these to, to look at your book, uh, China's Next Act, which I believe was published by Oxford. University Press. It's it's a very topical uh, book and, and nicely laid out. And I think you also have some personal anecdotes in there. What's interesting, and uh, one of those was uh, you talk about uh, President Clinton's uh, visit to China um, in 1998 and an important speech he gave uh, there uh, at Beijing Peking University and and also that climate. And I uh, I happened to actually be in Beijing at that moment. So I have very oh, wow. memories of yeah. what China was like then and <laughs> what the relationship was like then and what the issues were and uh, what the expectations were. So it's been uh, certainly uh, uh, lots of, there was a lot of optimism and hope that became uh, perhaps uh, not fulfilled, but um, uh, you know, never say never. But it was a it was a very uh, interesting and unique time uh, in history, as as you point out in your book. Well, thanks so much, Jesse. It's been a pleasure uh, chatting with you, uh, and really enjoyed it. Thank you, and look forward to the next time. Be well. Likewise.